starts our first session. Thanks for coming. You made it. The diehard people made it through the graduation crowd. Pressed on through. Tonight, 7 o'clock, starts our next session. We're going to have a big, we're going to push back all of these chairs, have a nice big worship time, blow out with Sean and his full team coming in from Virginia Beach. And we're just going to go for it. Sean and them just going to go for it for as long as they can stand, you know. So, um, but, you know, we're, we want to do um, at the end, when Sean is done at the end of this session, because uh, I don't know, I've heard a couple of you said, you're, you're here for right now, but you can't make it tonight and won't be here tomorrow morning because it's Father's Day. I want to give you an opportunity to sow financially into basically what Sean and his family and his friends carry. These people that, you know, give their life. You may want to turn this down in a minute. Down, it's pretty hot. Um, so anyways, I want to give you a t- chance to sow financially into Sean and to burn 24-7 into the, the heart and the value of worship and prayer and what that does in cities and communities and, commun- and churches and all that kind of stuff. So at the very end of the session, we're going to pass a little basket around just to give you an opportunity to sow. You know, that you can reap the whole thing of sowing into the value of worship and prayer. You can reap that in your life and the lives around you. So, um, but yeah, for, no further ado, Sean Foy is here, and I've I've followed Sean through Burn 24-7, you know, being part of the prayer movement for a long time myself, and just loving what the value, the the style, the differences, you know, and the different segments of the worship and prayer movement that's going on in the earth right now. And I love what God's doing in the Burn 24-7 and through Sean. And I'll have Sean explain more of that. How, have you, how, how many of you know about Burn, the Burn 24-7, 24-7 Burn? Well, you might have to go into that a little bit. It explains more of that. And it's awesome. Uh, but how many have heard of, like, IHOP, House of Prayer, Kansas City, prayer rooms? Well, Burn 24-7 is similar but not, you know, at the same time. Uh, different flavors, but, you know, Burn, you know, IHOP goes 24-7 forever. You know, they're still going. But, you know, Sean's team, and Sean can correct me about all this stuff, too. They come into cities it, all over the world. You know, he's joined Heidi Baker in Mozambique. He's gone to nations in Europe and all these places, and they... They come together with communities, people that live together, and they do burns, whether it's 12 hours straight or 50-something hours straight or whatever it is, and do combined worship and prayer and really shift the atmosphere over cities and communities. And they do this all over the world. And Sean, it's such an honor and privilege to have Sean and his team, his wife and kids will be here tonight to do this and teach us as a community, as a city of shifting the atmosphere, reaching the, you know, the kingdom advancing in the streets and society and every bit of life, that we're growing in the value of worship and prayer as a lifestyle, as a culture in the church and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, Sean, I'll just pass it on to you. You can take it over. Yeah. Awesome. Whew, I almost lost my salvation getting here today. Just kidding. No, uh, I, uh, we drove in last night from, um, uh, I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, we, I don't know, we drive back and forth down to Virginia Beach because that's where my family lives quite a bit, but yesterday, it normally takes like five, five to five and a half hours. Yesterday, it took almost eight, and um, I just, I love Virginia so much, and then Northern Virginia traffic, oh, it just... So, you guys are kind of, I, I know you all deal with that some too, and today took a long time, but I'm really excited to be here, and 
you know, there's so much that's on my heart. I guess, firstly, um, you know, I feel uh, so blessed uh, every time I get the opportunity um, to be in Virginia. And it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't happen probably as much as I would like. I was, um, last weekend, I was, um, just to give you an example of kind of a month of, for me, last week I was in, last weekend I was leading worship at Bethel Church in Redding, California, and then I flew in directly from London. I was in there a couple day, for a couple of days with our, our crew out there. And then I was in Geneva, Switzerland before that. And um, before that, I was in Asia. And so my li- our life's pretty crazy. About we, we visit about 20 to 30 nations every year. And um, what's interesting to me is that, and I'm, I was just writing this yesterday because we're finishing another, another book that we're working on, on kind of the history and the DNA of the burn. So this is cool to be able to share this. It comes at a, at a time where it's all kind of being refreshed for me. Um, but a lot of the history of what the Lord's done in my life comes back to Virginia and comes back to the season that I grew up um, in Virginia Beach, 12 miles from where the first cross was planted on the shores of North America. And it was in that season, I, I was born and raised in Montana, and my, my family moved out to Virginia because my dad got a job with CBN, and he was, he was uh, helping run um, Operation Blessing, if you're familiar with that. It's like the, the kind of the justice missional side of CBN, and so my dad was doing crazy things, you know, um, taking L-1011 planes and reconfiguring them to, like, become flying hospitals, you know, to fly into the nations and do surgery, and Anyway, that's what brought us here to Virginia, and, and I realized, you know, uh, first time that I ever came to Virginia, it was way hotter and way muggier than Montana, but yet sweet tea was incredible. And so I took the trade, went for it, and um, it was in those years growing up, we had an, a phenomenal, and I'll, I'll circle back around to this and what I want to share today. But we had a phenomenal season um, growing up in, in high school of this incredible outpouring of revival and worship and prayer and salvation that was just busting out of the seams in our community that I grew up in. And what's interesting is that we weren't really, really on the, like the conference grid. We didn't have like speakers come through a lot. We didn't really necessarily know like what was happening around the world, but we knew that there was something really sovereign taking place. And from my first time ever, you know, I was kind of the accidental worship leader. You know, there was nobody in my family that was a musician. There was nobody that, you know, had any history. I'd never had any lessons. And my mom got me a guitar for my 16th birthday. And I was just always a worshiper. I was passionate after God. I grew up, you know, a lot on the mission field. So I had like the missional side. But I just love the presence of the Lord, and it was in my youth group, you know, which was about three to four hundred rowdy teenagers meeting in a dingy, like smelly, you know, uh, primary school cafeteria. It was anything but glorious, you know. We had like two speakers, one of them worked kind of, and then we had a crooked overhead projector, so you had to tilt your head this way to like read the words. You know, the old school overhead projectors, you know, and sometimes you would turn it on there the wrong way and the words would be upside down. And anyway, but the thing that marked me was the wild, crazy passion. It was like we I grew up in, and there was all of these young, you know, wild, 
you know, worship leaders that just gave us permission to just be crazy after God, you know. And this was in the days I was about 16 years old when I started leading worship, literally after I learned my second chord. Um, my youth leaders were like, okay, you know two chords, go for it, you know. And so, you know, I have a running joke that every single uh, song that I loved at the time, which I was, it was funny, I was just with Martin Smith a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about, from Delirious, and we, I was talking about how, you know, Cutting Edge Delirious was like the soundtrack of my youth group, you know, and those songs, History Maker, and, you know, I Can Sing of Your Love Forever, and Not Ashamed, all these obsession, you know, these were the songs that gave language to our heart, but I only knew two chords. So literally every song, if it had six chords, seven chords, four chords, it was automatically two chords, you know? And I was joking with him about it, you know, because I'm like, you do not want to know how much I butchered your songs. But in our community in that season, you know, we had guys like Jason Upton, who he was 10 years older than me, and he was pouring in, in into, into me at the time, and, and he was wild, you know? And then we had guys like Adam Cates and other guys in that season that were that were not known at the time, but they were just creative, expressions. Ex, they were carried, you know, this wild expression to God. And they, they weren't, they didn't necessarily, I never knew the three fast and three slow song box. It's kind of what I'm getting to. I never was in that box because it didn't exist. And it wasn't that we were trying to break the box. We just never knew it really existed. You know, I was shocked when I moved out to Oklahoma and went to some of these big, massive secret churches and learned that there are actual churches that have 23 minutes of worship. I was like, this is the start of a lot of our songs. Like, we're not even getting through one song in 23 minutes, you know. And, and this is the context of what I grew up in, you know. And we would gather together and we had this place um, called The Warehouse, which was which literally it was a warehouse and it was in this kind of, you know, industrial district in Chesapeake, Virginia. And uh, after two years of meeting there, we found out later that it was like, it wasn't like zoned for public meetings. It was zoned for warehouses. <laughs> and so we actually had to get out of there. But there, for two, two, almost three years, we would meet together on Sunday nights in this warehouse. And the bareness of you know, there, it was just very bare, and it was very simple, and it was very echoey, and it was concrete floors. But that warehouse became like our laboratory to experience and discover God. And we would spend hours and hours every Sunday night just gathering together. Just, you know, someone would bring, it's just kind of like the New Testament. Someone would bring a song. Someone would have a hymn. Someone would have a word. And we would just flow with the Spirit. And so I grew up in this incredible history and heritage of what I like to call the swirl. The swirl, you know, just getting in the, in the zone, finding out what God wants to do. You know, we very rarely came together in a meeting with, a, you know, a, a, a linear agenda. It was more just like, we want to seek your heart, Lord, and do whatever you want us to do. Sometimes it would be wild, crazy intercession and travail. Sometimes it would be like, Holy Ghost joy explosion, you know, laughing all over the place. Sometimes we would, we would, you know, break into wild dancing, like warfare dancing. You know, we just never knew it was going to happen. Like, and that was part of the reason why people came, because they're like, we have no idea what's going to happen this week. And, and we just kind of want to go just to see, you know. And there was this, 
expectation in our heart that God was going to show up. Anyway, so that is the context that I grew up in. Fast forward uh, when I was about 17 years old. I, I thought that we were just a bunch of weird people all by ourselves in Virginia Beach. I didn't know that anybody around the world, well, really around America, I, I had visited, you know, some of the frontier nations. I'd been to Nepal. I'd been to the Amazon jungles in Brazil. And I had knew about revival breaking out around the world. But in America, I just had no clue until when I was 17, I stepped foot on the mall in Washington, D.C. at the call in 2000. And there was almost half a million people from my generation screaming their guts out for 12 hours in worship, prayer, and fasting. And it was in that moment that I realized, oh my gosh, there's a whole army out there. And it like confidence shot through our shot through my heart and courage and boldness. And it was like, man, we really are on the track with what the Lord's doing, you know, because a lot of times, and, and I, I love this about the prayer and worship movement, it's kind of like you have to be living in a hole in the ground to know that the, that the world right now, to not know that the world is being totally covered through a spirit of worship and prayer. It's happening in every nation, in every tribe, every city I go to, God is doing it, you know. And you know it's a sovereign move of God when nobody has a cool marketing plan. It's just happening, you know. And so part of my heart today, I, and I preface all that because I really cut my teeth and grew up in this community in Virginia. And I owe so much to this soil and this land. And, you know, we would, we would do crazy things, you know. We would go to Jamestown on 4th of July and have these wild, crazy outdoor burn worship services where we crank up the PA as loud as it can go and do drum circles, you know, calling the nation back to its roots, you know, its godly heritage. And we were just wild, you know, and we didn't know any better and no one told us we couldn't do it, you know. And I feel like even a lot of what the Lord wants me to do, even this afternoon and tonight, one of the things I love about tonight is, you know, we're able to really model everything that I'm talking about. Because some things are taught in the church and some things are caught. And I can sit here before you guys and I've written books and produced albums and done, you know, courses all over the world. And I could teach till you're blue in the face and preach the paint off the ceilings. But at the end of the day, if you're not catching anything, you're going to leave and, and not be changed. And my heart is to just give permission again to what the Lord's doing around the world. And just like for me growing up in that community where the boxes were just, they didn't exist. And there was limitless potential to where we could go in God. That's the same kind of freedom I want to release over you guys. So do this for me before I even start. That was a long intro. But put your hand on your head and say, God, break every box. Break every paradigm and remove every limitation that would hold me back from experiencing the fullness of what your heart desires. Now put your hand on your neighbor. Just say, I break every box over you. You are free. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Amen. Woo! So, Richmond, Virginia. It's a place to be. 
I love it too. The more I go around the world, everyone is 100% thoroughly convinced that they, that the place that they live is ground zero for revival. Every single person believes that. And I'm like, every single person is right. You know, and, and I just love, I love that mentality. And that's one of the reasons, you know, we never in a million years, um, you know, after we moved out to Oklahoma and then we lived in Texas, we, keep, we, we wanted to keep going west. We're like, let's follow the words of Michael W. Smith, go west, young man. Or Stephen Curtis Chapman, I don't remember, one of those guys, you know, go west, young man, all the people going east. Anyway, so our heart was to go west, you know, and the Lord called us back to the east coast. And out of all places in the east coast, the cold northeast, where there's not even any sweet tea. I mean, I, I know, bless, pray for us. Y'all can pray for us, please. We need a lot of intercession. But no, it's just, it's so interesting, you know, that, that the Lord called us to, um, to the east coast and, and the cold northeast. And, you know, as everybody in, in, you know, Texas and Oklahoma, it's like, they're like the nicest people on the earth. You know, everyone's nice. And even though a lot of times they're fake, they're just still nice, you know. Everyone smiles at you all the time. Like, I mean, people are praying over each other in Target. Like, it's just normal, you know. This is like normal life there. I mean, I mean, if you're a half-decent preacher, you can have a church of a couple hundred people. It's not hard, you know. And, and, but when we moved to the cold northeast, you know, everyone was like, oh, get ready. And by the way, it did live, live, live up to its expectations this last winter. I mean, it was like, gosh, the polar vortex, you know, it was like the soundtrack of Frozen did not go off in my house, you know. And I think it was because my kids so identified with that music. But I did not, and I never want to build a snowman after that. But what's interesting is that, you know, one of the main reasons that we really felt the Lord call us to the Northeast, and it was my wife that actually got the vision. So, you know, for all you husbands, listen to your wife. She always gets the prophetic stuff. Um, but one of the main reasons I feel like the Lord called us there, and we're, you know, an hour and a half north of D.C., we're an hour and a half west of Philadelphia, we're two and a half, to two and a half hours really from Manhattan. We can be in Manhattan in two and a half hours. And that area that we live in is about 60% of, of America's population is a day's drive from us. And almost 75% of all college students in America are in that whole Northeast corridor. And so it was really interesting driving down here because year, this year it's like again and again and again the Lord is just pounding our hearts with this mandate to go after university campuses. And so I was super geeked out when I drove down here and realized, like, you guys are, like, on the campus, you know, and that everything that I want to teach and talk about today is directly uh, applicable to 30,000 college students that live here from 100 nations. I did the research. 100-plus nations have invaded your nice little southern town of Richmond, Virginia. 30,000 of them. Probably, probably, but probably most of them are lost. You, you want to you hear the, the top nations of the people that come to, to VCU? This shocked me. Like, this shocked me. The, the, top, the, the top four nations that send students here, number one, Saudi Arabia. Number two, India. 
Number three, China. Number four, Kuwait. So out of the 30,000 people coming from 100 nations, those are the top four people. Saudi Arabia is, is, is like on voice of the martyrs. It's number three for most persecuted nation on the earth. It's one of the most unreached people groups, but yet they're sending their students, they're sending their, their, their college university students to be trained in Richmond, Virginia, a stone's throw from where you're gathering together to worship and pray. I mean, I think this is pretty significant. Some of you are still not convinced. Like, I wish that I could worship every week and influence a hundred nations around the world. And what I want to talk to you about is that we need to, like, break off a religious paradigm of what worship and prayer is and realize, guys, everywhere we go and everything we do, when we sing, when we worship, there is massive collateral damage. I love collateral damage. You literally carry an atmosphere and an aura everywhere you go, and I'm not... What I want to talk about is not just activating a greater awareness, you know, so that when you come in here and you worship, you can see angels and you can see, you know, all that. And that stuff's cool. But I believe that there's an activation of us understanding a kingdom mentality. You know, that, that, that what we do in this city and why we're here for such a time as this is very significant. I mean, you probably have greater access to some of the most unreached people on the face of the earth than if you were in the Middle East, which we lived there for uh, a month and a half last year. Every year we go, we go to unreached people groups. Uh, two years ago, I was on the ground in North Korea. It's rated number one, Voice of the Martyrs. Um, actually did, did an album kind of based off of that called Songs for Nations. There's a little shameless plug. Uh, the, the artwork in here is all from inside of North Korea. I mean, it's like completely illegal pictures. And um, everything we did there was illegal. So it was a miracle that we got in. It was a bigger miracle that we got out, you know. Because I have a couple American friends of mine that are stuck there right now. Um, but I, I, and so I, I want to start with that because I love the history and I love the heritage of Virginia. And I love the reason why this place first existed, you know. The, these, these, you know, pure-hearted, you know, uh, pilgrims that were looking for a place, a place to freely worship God in, you know, and they planted that cross for the first time in human history on the shores of North America in Cape Henry, Virginia. And they came with a dream in their heart. And I feel like that, you know, I just feel like this is the season where God is resurrecting that dream again in us. And on top of that, to be able to live this life and walk out this calling in the confluence of a massive university with tons of lost people. I mean, guys, we got to get this right. Amen. So I want to share with you, uh, turn real quick. This is one of my favorite stories, just real basic. I'm going to share, you know, a bunch of testimonies and we'll go for it again tonight. Um, but turn real quick to 1 Samuel for, uh, chapter 10. And this is one of the first times in the Bible where we begin to realize the power of prophetic worship. And um, I want to talk specifically on the role of prophetic worship and priestly ministry. And my, my goal behind this isn't just to create a hunger so that you would necessarily have more worship and prayer services. I think that would be cool. Next time I come here, I think we should do 24 hours and blow it out on the campus. Call everybody from around the state and just do a massive strike on BCU campus. 
I believe this. I mean, this is what we do all over the world. This is one of the reasons, you know, going back to why the Lord called us to the Northeast. You know, he gave us the Ivy League schools of America. And he said, if you go to the Ivy League schools, you know, they're calling us to be, you know, the, the least for healing for the nations. They're, they're the beginning, you know, they're the beginning ground zero, the bedrock of revival in the first and second great awakenings were the Ivy League schools. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Brown, they were revival epicenters. Like, not just like Christian schools. I mean, it was like the greatest revivals America has ever seen all began there. And now there's some of the most liberal, antichrist institutions in the world. But let me tell you, in this season, I hope I get a chance to get some testimonies. We are seeing the Ivy Leagues crack open with incredible revival. And it's beginning because a bunch of wild people are willing to gather, worship and pray, break open the heavens over the atmosphere, over because that's where the battle is. And we know that, right? The battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. And guess what the coolest thing is, is when Jesus commissioned Peter, and we see, you know, the word church for the first time, quote unquote, which actually is not the word, well, it's the word ecclesia. You know, Jesus said to Peter, he said, on this ecclesia, which, you know, we think of church as like a cool Christian club that we come for an hour and a half once on Sunday. But when Jesus says, on this rock or on this ecclesia, on this rock, I'll build my church. He's actually describing the ruling body government of society. That's what the word ecclesia means. So it's not like, hey, on this rock, we're going to make a really cool Christian club and hope that we get a bunch of college students to come and look at the fog and lights. No, it's like, hey, on this rock, I will establish a ruling body government. I'm giving them authority. I'm extending them authority over their city, over their region, over their nation. And, and whatever they bind is bound. Whatever they loose is loose. The sad part is a lot of us in the church have abdicated our entire right to bind and loose. We don't do that anymore. We just meet and high five each other. You know, and we come to, to hear messages that will tickle our ears. When really our authority and our calling, the church is a ruling body government. The church, when we meet together in, in what we're called to do in our authority, according to what Jesus said. How many of you guys believe if Jesus says it, it's good, right? It's perfect. So his dream, and you can see this, you know, and I'm kind of rambling, but I just want to catch you up. Like all throughout the Bible, I mean, the first... You know, after changing the water into wine, which Jesus actually didn't want to do that miracle, but his mom manipulated him into it, and he did it anyways to set a pattern for us good sons to listen to our moms. The first thing that he did to initiate his ministry after 30 years of silence, right? 30 years, Jesus does nothing. Like a normal, boring, average guy. The son of God. Walks the earth as a normal person. Sometimes I, I, th I just love to talk about that. Especially at ministry schools. Because people are like so eager to start a ministry. If I could just have a ministry. I mean if I could just like have a website. And people would like my Facebook. And like I just want to do a ministry. You know and here Jesus was never eager. He was always so content being connected to his father. So for 30 years no one even knew him. I mean, how are you God and no one knows who you are? 
And then when they discover who you are, everyone's offended. Oh, Jesus from that armpit town of Nazareth? Ugh. Anyway, that's a whole other message. You know, and this is part of what the Lord wants to build in us is a character and a consistency of faithfulness. Some of us want to be launched into ministry, you know, and, and I have young people come up to me all the time. Just release your mandate of ministry over me and just release your anointing. And I'm like, I can't really do that. But if you want to engage in the process of faithfulness before the Lord. You know, I was I was just spent the night at my home last night with my mom at my mom's house and I just walked into my room and I have this map on the wall of my room, like one of those National Geographic maps that takes up the whole wall. I remember being 15, 16, 17, 18 in high school. I remember just waking up in the middle of the night, like with the burden of intercession and like going over and laying hands on the map. And I remember singing just hours, playing my guitar, like worshiping, you know, and prophesying to the nations before I ever had a ministry or knew anything. Like my heart was fully satisfied being used by myself in my room with nobody else knowing or caring, you know. And that's the process that many young people don't want to go through. They're not willing to, you know. And, and so anyway, after Jesus gets, you know, initiated at 30 years old, the first thing that he does is he storms into the temple with a whip, causing some ruckus. And I know that, like, we love to read our nice little children's Bibles that are very domesticated. But people were definitely injured. I guarantee you. He's whipping a cord everywhere, overthrowing tables. I mean, his disciples are freaking out. People were probably hurt and injured. Jesus, the good shepherd, you know, the feminine-looking guy on the nursery wall. That guy hurt people to prove a point. I mean, that guy was was violent. I mean, it said this spirit of zeal came over him and he came in. And, and what's the first thing that he declared? I mean, how do you initiate your ministry? Like, I mean, he could have like raised someone from the dead or done something awesome where everyone would love him. But the first thing he decides to do is to go into the church, not, not the lost, the church. Go to the church and clean up shop to remind them my house shall be called a house of prayer. And you see in the heart of Jesus, like this is why, this is a big deal. I mean, I know it's a two o'clock session. There's not tons of people here, but if three people grab onto this, it would be revolutionary for this town. This is why it's a big deal. Training in worship and prayer and becoming the house of prayer, becoming the dream of God on the earth is a big deal to him. It's so much a big deal that this is how he initiated his ministry. You know, at the risk of offending everybody that was there, he came with a cord and whips. In passion, it says that the disciples looked on him, and, and they, they quoted, it's, it's one of my favorite quotes, you know, because here, you know, got these Jewish guys, which are, by the way, like, Jesus was a, was a youth pastor. Like, let's just put it in perspective, you know. His disciples were teenagers, you know, early 20s at most. Jesus was like the first great youth pastor that walked the earth, you know. And so he's having to corral and encourage and admonish and coddle these teenagers that are going through their emotional stuff, their unbelief, their all the kind of stuff that teenagers go through. These are the disciples. And if you understand that, it gives you a lot more grace when you read their issues. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, 
So they look at Jesus as this is happening in the temple, and they say, oh my gosh, we read this. This is Psalm 69. Zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall upon me. And they go, this is zeal embodied in God. And they're just awestruck with the passion. You know, not an angry guy trying to hurt people, but a zealous God trying to rightfully bring his church back to its original purpose and calling. To be the house of prayer. To be the ecclesia. To be the epicenter of legislation on planet earth. You know, so many people are very quick to criticize, and I, I, I am too at times, you know, this crazy administration that we have in power right now in D.C. and all that kind of stuff. But you know what's more powerful than criticizing? Hold a prayer meeting. Legislate in the heavens. You have greater authority. You have a greater authority to legislate in the heavens. This is why I love what we do. I don't know if you guys have heard about David's tent. We're doing it again this year. Three years in a row. 50 days of nonstop worship and prayer in front of the White House. Never happened in history. It shouldn't be happening according to all the laws and the regulations. But guess what? Every single year, three years in a row, we put a massive, huge, obnoxious tent in front of the White House with a big sound system. We've called worship leaders from 50 states and we've burned our little hearts out. Last year was 40 days. I think this year it's going to be 50 days. It's cool. Uh, it's in, I'll, I'll give those to you guys tonight. It's, it's in the fall. It's, it's, um, it's going to be, I think, September into October. No, October into November. We're hardcore. I mean, out there, snow, wind, hail. What's crazy is that last year, um, during David's tent, this is kind of a, you guys want to hear one testimony? Then I'll jump to the story. Cool testimony. And, uh, you know, I always, I, I, I always feel a stronger patriotic duty to people that live this close to D.C. Like, I mean, this is like, you know, I feel, and this is one of the reasons I love living. I mean, I, we, we drive down there all the time with my kids, prayer walk, walk around the mall, prophesy. I mean, we, we don't just do it like from a stage. Like, we do it because we believe in the calling and the mandate on this nation. We believe in the history. I know it's not a perfect history. But we believe in the prayers of the early saints. We believe in the prayers of, you know, George Washington's mom, who was like the first massive prayer woman in the history of America. You guys need to read up on her. She was insane. She basically birthed, you know, birthed in prayer her son to be like one that would unite the nation together. It was crazy, you know. Anyways, uh, so, so during, the, during the 40 days of worship and prayer, Guess what happens? First time ever in American history, the U.S. government shuts down. You guys remember that? It's kind of, it's just like, really? <laughs> really? We're really shutting the government down. Yes, we did shut the government down, you know. And I think it was, how long was that? It was like 10 days or something? It was like a long time, you know. Which means that all government agencies are closed. Which means that all national parks are closed. Which means that all government owned property 
is, is, is shut down. No one can have meetings or do things. So all the national parks across America, all the government offices, everything connected and tied to the government is shut down. And because of it, major businesses all over the world are shut down. So, great story. The day that happens, of course, there's no security, there's no police, and the, the, the guy comes up to, you know, Jason Hershey and some of the guys there in D.C. reluctantly, which is so funny to me, you know. First, they hated the idea of day-night worship and prayer. Then they were, like, weirded out. There's all this peace around the Capitol. The crime rate's dropping. We still think you're kind of weird because you take drums and beat them around the White House. But we have a value for you. We don't know what's going on, but, but please come again. You know, they invited us to come back. So last year, second year, government shuts down. First day the government shuts down, the officials come up and they say, you know what? We hate to do this, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to shut, you know, this down. Like, there's just, there's no one working. There's no security and, and everything's being shut down right now during this. And right as he's doing that, the head of the secret service walks over to the prayer tent. I mean, and, and this is it's so comical, guys, because this is like, this is like the most rinky-dink circus tent you've ever seen, right? I mean, you know, you know all those Asians that come and, like, they take pictures, like, from Japan, and they, they come, and they, they have, like, these, you know, the, the cameras that haven't even been developed yet, you know, and they all want to get their picture doing this in front of the White House, you know? I love those guys. Well, they can't get their pictures because there's a huge tent in the way, you know? So they're like, they're like trying to take pictures and they're standing like next to this worship tent that's right there. You know, people from all over the world. It's so funny, you know? And, and yet, it's attracting so much attention because it's legislating things in the spirit realm, you know? So anyway, the guy, the secret service guy comes over. He goes, listen, he goes, Please don't stop this. He said, my, sec- my agency will be responsible for providing security for your tent. A couple of wows. Let me put that in context. The most elite security force on the face of the earth that protects the President of the United States is watching over our little prayer meeting for 50 days. I mean, if that doesn't show you the value that God has for what we're doing, I mean, that's just a small testimony, you know. But I share that example with you because I want you guys to come and be a part of it later this year. But, but let's jump in here. So 1 Samuel 10, this is a great story. And I, I want to share one story from, from the Old Testament and one from the New. And I want to show you how this calling of prophetic worship actually goes all the way from the Old and it extends into the New Testament. This is why... The great prophetic promise of Amos 9-11, which is, at the, you know, in the last days, I'll restore David's fallen tent. Which is basically referring back to the 30 years of day-night worship that David initiated when he became king. So Amos 9-11 says that's going to happen again. And then in Acts 15-16, in the New Testament, James speaks up at the Council of Jerusalem and says the same verse again. Guys, this is a planning of the early church. Don't forget the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Okay, so you see this thread throughout the Bible. But this is a great story because a lot of that, those prototypes are birthed out of this moment. So the history, just to give you a context, Israel wants a king um, because they want to be like every other nation in the world. 
And Samuel is like, you don't want a king because a king's going to rule over you and do this and blah, 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 blah. And the, Israel says, no, we want a king. And so God says, okay, give him a king. So Samuel goes out to anoint a king. He finds Saul. Verse 5, this is when Saul was a good guy. And it says in uh, t- chapter 10, verse 5, it says he's giving Saul, or he's giving Samuel, who's the prophet, directions. He's telling him, take a flask of oil with you, and this is how you're going to anoint the king. And it says in verse 5, after that you'll go to Gebe of, of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. Just pause. You're, I'm sending you into enemy territory. The Philistines are bad guys. They hate Israel. They want the destruction of Israel. You can trace the Philistine... Yeah, anyway, that's a, another topic for another day. But the Philist, it's a Philistine outpost, and he's telling, he's telling Samuel, you're going to anoint the next king over the nation on enemy territory, which is just weird, first of all. And he says, as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. Keyword. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. So Samuel comes to Saul, he anoints him in the beginning part of the chapter, he gives him these instructions. He says, hey listen, I anointed you with oil, you're not anointed yet. FYI. I know I anointed you with oil, but you're actually not anointed yet. What you need to do is, Saul, I want you to walk into enemy territory as the king, or the soon-to-be king. And there in enemy territory, you're going to find a bunch of wild prophesying musicians. They're going to be walking down on enemy territory. And what's so crazy about this is Saul isn't like, this is weird. I mean, don't don't you guys think you, I mean, it's like, it's like, hey, you know, it's like, I want you to walk into the heart of Iran with your, with your guitar, singing music, and there you will get anointed. I mean, we would kind of be like, that's weird. But what's crazy about the context of this story is Samuel paints the picture to Saul like this is an everyday thing. Oh, you know those prophesying musicians that walk around in enemy territory and prophesy the kingdom of God? Those kind of guys? Saul goes, oh yeah, we see those all the time. Like, in other words, what I'm trying to say, I'm, I'm reading into this a little bit to say, maybe this was a normal thing in that day. Maybe this is something that happened quite a lot. Maybe there was a culture in a context of sending prophetic worshipers into enemy territory. Maybe this is how Israel conquered so much ground. You guys with me? I mean, sometimes you've got to ask maybe, especially when you see something that's weird. My favorite part about this story is that he goes to the Philistine outpost which is enemy territory, with guys that don't have guns and don't have weapons. I mean, they literally, they are prophesying with flutes and harps and tambourines. And what's so cool about the story in a pre-Holy Spirit era, meaning that Pentecost hadn't happened, the Holy Spirit didn't be released with tongues of fire, we're living in a greater reality today. 
Somebody look at someone and say, greater reality. And it's important for you to understand, sometimes in the prayer and worship movement, we get really addicted to the days of David, and the days of Samuel, and the days... And those are great days. I mean, they set the pattern. I mean, Jesus Christ will forever be known as the son of David in all of history. Like, David was a big deal. But it's important for us to understand, we actually live in a superior covenant. We live in a greater day. We can access things David could only dream of accessing. You guys with me? And this is so important to understand. As you're creating a healthy theology for worship and prayer, we don't just stay in Old Testament land. We use that, but we say, oh my gosh, thank God I don't live then. I wake up sometimes in the morning, and I'm like, you know what? I really don't feel like making seven animal sacrifices this morning. Maybe I'll just get out my ukulele and play a song, and it'll be even better than seven animal sacrifices. Are you guys with me? Like, it's, it's, like, you should be really happy that you're alive in the New Testament. And because you have greater access, there's a greater requirement and demand that's placed on you. So anyway, so Saul goes up to them. Samuel, first time ever, I'm going to anoint you. I'm the prophet. You're not going to be anointed. But when you come into the company of these prophesying minstrels that are going to be walking on enemy territory, prophesying on their instruments. It's crazy. He says, when you come into the atmosphere of them, you're going to start prophesying too. Saul's like, what? I'm not a prophet. Remember, back in those days, you weren't able to, like, choose. Well, today, I am going to be a prophet. No, no. If you're not a prophet, you're not a prophet, you know? Like, you're, it's very distinct, your roles and your callings. Well, Saul, obviously, is not a prophet. We can see later down in the story, it says that Saul starts to prophesy. And people go, who is that guy prophesying? And they go, that's not Saul. He's not a prophet. But yet there was something about the atmosphere that they were carrying. They were legislating and creating an atmosphere, collateral damage. You guys with me? And so everywhere they went, and I'm sure that there were other bystanders, maybe other enemy soldiers that were coming to kill them because the enemies had real weapons and these guys didn't. But maybe they came... And they got into the company, into the atmosphere of this world and started prophesying too. Who knows? But my favorite part about it and the purpose behind the establishment of the tabernacle of David and the restoration of communities that embody prophetic worship, which, by the way, I want to tag this on the heels. I was talking to our youth group. I've never seen, still to this day, a community where so many youth group kids were getting saved. We never even did altar calls when I grew up in Virginia Beach. We weren't even good at that. It wasn't like, put your heads down, I'm going to count to five, unless you get up here, you're going to hell. Like, we didn't know how to do that, you know. We just worshipped our guts out to Jesus, and people came to the altar, and they got saved. And whenever you have the atmosphere of prophetic worship, and His presence is in the room, I mean, His entire purpose is to seek and save the lost. A lot of times, he doesn't need as much help as we think he needs. You know? So in this story, it says that as Paul stepped into the atmosphere of this, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. 
blah, 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 blah. Here it is, verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesy with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And this is their father. And so it became their saying, Is Saul among the prophets? After he stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. And it says this, you know, referencing back. Not only did he start prophesying and engage in their activity, but it says in the verse here, verse 6, it says, and you will be changed into a different person. Meaning it's not just about you prophesying and having cool prophetic words and songs, but there is a transformation that is actually going to take place in this atmosphere where you'll never be the same again. And from this moment onward, you see the favor of God land upon Saul. Everything he touches is blessed. Everything he does brings increase. And the favor of God is all over him. And it came in one moment with a bunch of wild musicians worshiping in enemy territory, walking down a hillside. Now, I use that example. I'm going to share a couple real-life testimonies with you. Because we actually do this. Like, it's cool to look at this and go, wow, that's awesome. It's another thing to say, hey, we should try that. Anybody think we should try this? So, quick little testimony. As you're turning, I want you to turn to Acts 15. to share another story from the New Testament um, that embodies the same principle. So, a few months ago, every year, we do these wild outreaches. And by the way, you guys can pray for me uh, in about four days. I'm leaving to Brazil. And um, during the World Cup, which is this week, in case you guys haven't heard, the largest sporting event in the history of the world every four years. Uh, it's the most televised sporting event. I know it's not the Super Bowl. Sorry to bum you out. It's the World Cup. And um, we love, we have a, a, have a habit in the burn communities around the world. We have about 120 furnaces of worship. And as he was saying earlier, you know, we meet together some once a month. Um, in some places like in India, several of our burn communities meet together every weekend. They'll do 12 hours or 24 hours, even up to 100 hours of worship and prayer. And then a lot of the times, they'll leave from the place of worship and prayer, and they'll immediately go out and do an outreach. And we use the expression, you know, from the great commandment to the great commission. From the first commandment to the second. It's the first commandment, loving God with your whole heart, that empowers you to love people. And so there's this great merging, the season that we're living in, where there's not a prayer movement and a missions movement, but they're one and the same. If you want to be missional, you've got to pray. If you want to pray, you have to be missional. And it's this, it's this theme of the fire of worship and prayer that's burning in our hearts, leading to the fragrance of the name of Jesus being known all across the earth. You guys with me? And so we take this principle, and uh, this next week, um, actually, I believe it's tomorrow. There's going to be a gathering in Brazil of over a million people worshiping and praying. There's tons of stuff that's... I mean, right now, like, we are... We, we love to find super epic historic gatherings and hijack them. We're like the wedding crashers, you know? Like, 
We were, during the Olympics in London, we had the only stadium prayer and worship meeting during the Olympics. You know, we had a 30-day burn that was happening in London where every single second that the Olympics were happening in the eyes of the world were looking at London, we were worshiping and praying our hearts out and then sending fiery evangelists to the streets. And it was amazing to see the fruit that happened. Same thing in the past Olympics. Same thing in the World Cup in 2010 in South Africa. Same thing this month in Brazil. And so I'll be there next week. And this is the last place that I'm going before then. So I kind of feel commissioned of a sense. And I really, want, I really would ask for you guys even tomorrow before I leave to pray over me. That the Lord would really come strong in that nation. It's, it's uh, I think number two or three in the world for human trafficking. Brazil is. Uh, there's massive corruption. There's massive issues over the whole nation, but yet the Lord is highlighting that nation right now in this season. And there's incredible potential for, for this amazing move of God. And, and the, the Brazilian people are wild worshipers. I mean, they're about an hour late to every meeting. So if you start a meeting at 7, it really starts at 8. No, seriously. But they, then they'll never leave. You'll try to change songs. That it doesn't matter. There becomes points when I've led worship in Brazil where you are no longer leading the worship as the worship leader. You are just following wherever other people are going, you know. Um, But there's a million people that are gathering to do worship and prayer today and tomorrow. And then next week, a million people are going to be evangelizing and hitting the streets. And hitting the brothels and hitting the slums and, and going to those places. And so, anyway, we're, we're super excited to see these two things merge. But let me share you one testimony from America. Because I have, like, tons from around the world. I think this year already I've, I've been to 11 or 12 different nations. Um, but one of my favorite testimonies of, of, of late is what happened on October 31st in Salem, Massachusetts last year. And... Um, Salem, Massachusetts, Salem obviously is very big in American history because of the witch trials, and it has been a gathering place for uh, the occult and Wicca and satanic high priests um, for many years now. And they gather together on October 31st, and they just take over the town. And I don't mean a few of them, I mean a hundred thousand of them. I mean probably the largest gathering of witches in the world every year is in Salem, Massachusetts. And October 31, and, and, and we love it in the burn communities, because we have schools and internships and, you know, mission trips that we do all over the world. In fact, right now we have a team in the Congo, um, in, in Africa, and, and it's crazy what's happening over there. But we love witches. And we love witches when they encounter the love of Jesus. We love how their intimidation and fear just crumbles under the power of his love. And we love watching that. That's one of our favorite things. And so we got so excited about seven, eight years ago when this gathering came on our radars. Because we were like, oh my gosh, we pray for witches all the time. We pray for the occult. We pray that God would hijack and break in. And one time every year, they're all in one place. We're like, this is awesome. Collateral damage, you know. So every year for seven years in a row, we've done a historic and and. On October 31st, the whole town shuts down. Nobody wants to be anywhere near it. It's creepy. I mean, these guys do like seances and they do weird sacrifices and they do like 
they, you know, they hoist up the satanic high priest and parade them through town, and it's super creepy, you know. It's not like, hey, I want to wear a witch costume and be cute. No, these are like really dark people, you know. And so every year we're like, you know what? The presence of God is stronger. It says in Malachi 1.11 that from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, it says every place, incense, will rise. Every crevice. There's no place on earth that's safe anymore. Every place is getting invaded with worship and prayer. It's breaking out of Sunday morning boxes and it's hijacking planet earth. And if you want to know where the gospel is heading to the great days of the book of Revelation... The whole planet is turning into a ginormous, non-stop worship and prayer service. I promise you, all of planet Earth, and God's not going to come, up, come down here and swoop down with the big ambulance from heaven and rescue us out of the darkness. That's not what it says in the Bible. It says that he's coming back for a pure and spotless bride that's radiant with life. And so what that means is that this place is going to look a lot like that place. And how we make this place look like that place is we start doing down here what they're doing up there. It's a good place to start, right? And we know what's going on in heaven. Anybody with me? Day and night, Revelation 4, they never stop. And it's not tame. So funny, people like try to they try to paint this picture that, like, Revelation 4 is like some kind of fairy tale. When it's reality, Ezekiel saw the same thing. It is wild, crazy, insanity partying in heaven. Non-stop colors, flashes of lightning, people falling down, creatures with eyes everywhere. Guys, it is freaky. It is weird. It is wild. It is not tame. It is psychotic. And I believe I get so excited when our worship services start looking more like that. Not just being crazy for the sake of being crazy, but being passionate and filled with zeal and love after God, like all of those weird creatures and things up there. And so anyway, October 31st. So every year for for about... You know, seven years in a row, we've gathered together and we've done 24 to 48. I think one year we even did up to 100 hours of worship leading up to October 31. We go, man, if we're going to do outreach with a bunch of witches, we want to be so tanked on the joy and love of God that nothing can distract us. And what's so funny is that joy is so contagious. Like, we don't ever send out mean missionaries. Like, mean missionaries should stay home. Nobody likes mean, angry, sad, depressed missionaries. Stay home. Get sozo. You know, get, get breakthrough. Like, like, do that before you evangelize, because that is not attractive to the world. You know? Especially witches. They know they're depressed. They know they're oppressed. They know, you know, and so, anyway, we get really tanked on joy. We do crazy wild worship. We rent out this big church down there. And then on October 31st, during the main seance, the main wild outreach, or sorry, the main time that they're doing this crazy march through the city, we unleash the hounds of heaven. We unleash the worshipers that have been locked inside a room for 24 hours singing their guts out to Jesus. 
And they are so optimistic and so happy and so joyful, nothing can faze them, you know. So I w- had the privilege to be there this last year, and it was so much fun. And we were, um, we found this really narrow part of the, of the streets of downtown Salem, because it's a very old city, Cobblestone Streets. We found a part where the, march, where the march of witches comes through that's very narrow. And we, it was perfect because we wanted to, like, find the place where we could reach the most witches, you know. So we found this, and, and literally the street's probably this wide. And think about this, 100,000 witches coming through this, you know. And so we, li- we took all of our worshipers that are, like, laughing hysterically. They're just tanked on joy. They're filled with the love of God. They got fire in their eyes, hope in their heart. We put half of them lining this side of the street. And we put half of them lining this side of the street. And so every single witch, sorcerer, occult person, and satanic high priest had to walk through our tunnel of crazy, wild, happy worshipers. There was no choice. Sometimes it's all about strategic location, you know. So we're sitting there, and we, we brought our guitars and our instruments, and it's cold, you know. It's October 31 in Boston, basically Boston, outside of Boston. And we're playing our ukuleles and our drums, and we are just so happy, you know. And then this witch march starts. And so they start walking through, and I'll never forget this. It was such an amazing experience. Because I had heard the testimonies for years, but this last year was my first time to be able to go because of my schedule. And I'll never forget when that first witch walked through. And this witch was a dead giveaway because she had some kind of ankle brace on, which I was already like, oh gosh, here we go, you know. Anybody around our crew that looks like they have a medical issue, you have just put a target on your back, you know. You are an immediate target, you know. It's like you don't even have to get a prophetic word for that. You just look and you're like, ah, you know. And so she's walking through like this. And I'll never forget, you know, one of our young guys playing the uke. And he's just, just so happy, just filled with the presence of God. And it's funny, you know, like, A lot of times in intercession, we have this, like, crazy concept in theology that we have to have an aneurysm for God to move. Like, we have to get this really intense bass and get minor chords. And we have to, like, look really serious. And the more serious and intense we look, the more God moves. But I like to describe it like this. My theology is this. And I've tested this in some pretty gnarly places. I mean, where they're invading Iraq right now, I was there like, like three and a half years ago, standing on those mountains between Iraq and Iran. And um, I was in North Korea. I mean, I don't have, not trying to give you my credentials, but we've tested this theory out. And what we discovered is it's, it's like when you walk in a dark room and you turn a light, turn a light switch on, you're not standing there waiting to see who's going to win. You know, it's not like you're like, I don't know if the light's going to make it this time. There's so much darkness in here. I don't know. No, you flip the light on, and what? The room's lit. You guys with me? Just trying to use simple illustrations. It's the same way when we're worshipers and we're carrying the presence of God. When we ask Him to come, when we begin to worship, guess what? He's there. He's not waiting for us to do half hour of minor chord songs, and then He'll finally come. He's not Gandalf up there waiting for us to twist his arm. He wants to show up more than we want him to show up. So anyway, we're up there and we're just 
you know, and, th- and this guy's playing the ukulele, and he just looks right in this witch's face. And he goes, wow, what's the matter with your leg? He's just like, ding, 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 no singing. And the witch goes, you know, the, the, uh, it was a guy, I met, it was, and, and he goes, he goes, you know, I, um, I, I had this accident, I was, you know, playing sports the other day. He goes, well, man, dude, God's going to heal it, yeah, like that. And every, all of a sudden, you see like ten hands just go on that leg, you know. And I kid you not, immediately, that witch, first witch in the group of 100,000, that's coming, jumps up and goes, oh my gosh, and, and blankety, 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 blank. My, and I love, like, I love the, you know, the unfiltered praise, you know, the unsanctified praise. Oh, my blankety blank, my foot, there's like heat going through my foot. And all of a sudden, this witch starts running up and down, screaming, my foot is healed, what happened to my foot? And, and they're like, what happened? And we said, it's Jesus. And she goes, blankety blank, Jesus healed my foot, you know. And all of a sudden, we have our first evangelist, you know. This witch is running up and down the street, screaming out, oh my gosh, you know. And, and pretty soon, and then we have our healing line. And everybody wants to get prayed for. And witches are getting delivered and set free and saved and healed. All in this crazy tail end of 24 hours of worship with a bunch of happy, clappy 20-year-olds leading a witch revival. I mean, it was one of the most incredible things. And yes, we had pastors that were there, you know, that could connect with them and bring them into local churches and blah, 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 blah. But it was amazing to see the principle of the atmosphere that we carry. You know, and I think sometimes we underestimate our capacity to release the kingdom. You know, and it, and it actually stifles your prayer life. If you think that your prayers don't mean much, you probably won't pray much. You know, and, 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 and I just feel like, you know, part of my heart, even coming this weekend, is to just give like a little boost to your spirit to say, man, you are following the heart of God. He's doing this all over the earth. You live on the campus, you know, you, you worship and sing and pray on the campus of VCU. There's 30,000 college kids. I mean, I just want to like shake some of you guys to realize the opportunity and the privilege that you have. Okay, so let me share this last story. Then I'm going to pray over you. We're all going to drink some sweet tea, and we are going to party tonight. And I'm really excited because, um, uh, because this crew that's going to come with me tonight, um, they're, they're all musicians and worshipers from uh, Virginia Beach. And they all were born and raised in Virginia. And um, they, uh, they kind of grew up, you know, they're... I don't know, anywhere probably from like eight to or seven to ten years younger than me. But they grew up under that atmosphere that we kind of pioneered in high school, you know. And they were able to go faster and farther than we were ever, ever able to do. I mean, we every now and then we butted it up against religious structures and systems in our community. And we would have like, you know, Baptist kids would come and... You know, because uh, I went to a Baptist school at the time, and they would all come to the meetings in youth group, and they would all start speaking in tongues. No one would even be, like, praying over them, you know, or explaining it. And we didn't have any explanations. It was just, like, this, this sovereign move of God. 
And so we had some of those issues, but these guys, they grew up going higher and farther and faster than we ever did. And it's amazing. You'll see tonight, you know, and I want to just have them sing and prophesy. And I feel like it's so powerful that we all kind of grew up in this region, and yet we're contending for it to reach its fullness, you know. Richmond is so significant in the heart of God. It's so significant, not just, not just for, you know, Virginia, but for the state of the nation. And I could go into a huge thing about that, but hopefully you guys already know that. Say it's a big deal that we live here. Tell somebody that. So in this story in Acts 16, this is my other favorite story of collateral damage. Um, because these guys aren't even worship leaders. They're not even like musician types. These are two guys that just got the crap beaten out of them. They're a couple lashing short of death. They're hanging by their arms in an underground prison. Like, thinking they're going to die. Sometimes we talk about this story of Paul and Silas, and we're like, oh, they just, you know, it's like, like you're watching America's Most Wanted, you know, and they were handcuffed, and they're sitting there in handcuffs. No, they were beaten profusely. I mean, their guts are probably coming out of their back. Like, this is, the, this is how they used to roll then, you know. It was, you know, the, it, there was no reading your Miranda rights. I mean, this was the Romans crushed people. Like, they crushed people for fun, you know. And so these guys grew up under that. And so Paul and Silas, we know from, his, from history that they were literally thinking they were going to die that night. You guys with me? I just want to change your context of the story so that you understand what's really happening, you know. Don't think of it in terms of American, you know, jails and prison. Think of Roman iron fist, crush the Jews mentality. This is what these guys are doing. So they're, they're literally, they, they are completely bleeding. They're thinking they're going to die. And Paul and Silas who are some of the main leaders in the early church, they decide, well, if we're going to go out, we're going to go out singing. Like, this was not like a glory service, you know, where they're just like caught up and they're seeing gold dust and feathers. No, they're literally probably going to die tonight. And, at, and, and this is why it's so important for us, and I, this, I'm just going to kind of poke this in there. You must develop a prayer and worship life that is consistent through the mountains and the valleys. You, it must be consistent. It must, you know, and, and I've lived this. You know, I lost my father a couple of years ago to cancer. And it was the heart season of my life. And I feel like that as I walked through that, the worship in my heart it had never grown so much, you know, through that season. Because nothing at the time made sense to me. Theology didn't make sense to me. You know, why it happened, how we didn't get breakthrough, all those issues that I was going through in my life. Nothing made sense. But when I got my guitar, and I'm, I'm kind of a nature freak, so I, I just love to get outside. You know, I just love anything worshiping outside is my deal, you know. Anytime I would grab my guitar and I would go outside and I would look at the stars and just begin to play, it was like all of a sudden things begin to make sense again. You know, and the presence of God has, has like been my refuge. It's been my lifeline. I'm obsessed with it. It's not something I do on the stage because I have albums or because I have a ministry. 
It's who I am as a person. It's how my family lives. You'll see my kids tonight. I was warning them. They're going to they're think they own this place, by the way. Every church they go and they think they own. They run up and down like crazy. They wave flags. They dance. They twirl. And we let them do it. Because I love my kids growing up in an atmosphere of freedom and worship, you know. Thank you. So, it says in verse 23, after they had been severely flogged and they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully, upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Doesn't seem like a very convenient time to worship. Sometimes in America, we worship out of convenience. That's why our worship a lot of times is powerless. You know, Jesus said to the woman at the well, he said, the Father's looking for people that worship in spirit and truth. Which means that he's looking for sincerity. He's looking for authenticity. He's looking for people that mean what they say. Sometimes in the middle of church, this is just a side note for the 2 p.m. session of people that are hardcore. I wouldn't say this in another one, but sometimes I just want to stop, sometimes in the middle of services, and just be like, you don't mean that. Like, if you don't mean it, then don't sing it. And I can't wait till we move back into the day in the church where we're not just robots reading words off of a screen. Like, push, 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 push. Give me the next slide. Okay. Give me the next slide. We're like on Instagram, but we're singing, but we're thinking about a million other things. And our worship is not sincere. It's not coming from a pure heart. And we don't really mean what we sing. And sometimes, honestly, I'll sing the same line for 20 minutes. It annoys people. It might annoy some of you guys tonight. I've Too bad, you know. Sometimes you need to find a truth or a principle of who God is and you need to sing it and sing it and sing it and sing it until you believe it. And the more you sing it, the more revelation you have of it. The more it becomes truth in your heart. But we're trying to cram in 14 songs into 30 minutes. So we don't get the opportunity, the Selah moments, to think, to meditate, to just sit in that place where we're tearing with the Lord. You know, and this is why the Lord is releasing a movement of prayer and worship that's far beyond um, just a Sunday service. So, and by the way, I love Sunday services. I, I just preached at mine, uh, my church in Harrisburg a couple Sundays ago. And I love, I mean, we're, we are finding so much freedom in Sunday morning. People are getting literally set free. It's awesome. And I love watching guys that are just so faithful in their nine to fives and so faithful in what God's called them to. I love watching Sunday be a time where they can just explode with joy before the Lord, you know. And I feel like that that's where we're going. But it says here, so... Um, Upon, uh, it says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and other prisoners were listening to them. Remember, Paul and Silas were not worship leaders. They did not write some of the top songs on CCLI and they probably never recorded an album that they had at a product table in the back. You know, Paul and Silas were gnarly apostolic dudes that just worship their guts out to God. And when they're in their darkest hour, 
of their life, knowing they're going to probably lose their life by the morning, they want to go out worshiping God. So they're singing. And it's funny, too. They're not, it doesn't say that they're singing because they know there's going to be a breakthrough. Like, they're just singing because they love God. And I love singing for a breakthrough, but what if we developed a culture in our lives where we just sung and worshiped all the time? It wasn't like, well, we have to get this special breakthrough. Let's call everyone together and worship. Well, what if we were just always worshiping? What if we just had a community that day and night we worshiped together? Just a dream, but it's happening. So it says, that, um, it says the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, everyone say at once. Remember, the light switches on. The light. At once, all of the prison doors, say all, of the prison doors flew open. And everybody, say everybody's, everybody's chains came loose. is awesome. It doesn't say all of the prisoners were harmonizing together in a beautiful song that was rising before the throne of God. No, it says two gnarly dudes that were dying began to sing to God and because of their song, everybody around them got the same breakthrough that they got. Collateral damage. Sometimes it's not even about your breakthrough. It's about the strung out college kid down the road that's about to commit suicide. But in the middle of your song, several blocks down, there's an atmosphere of freedom that goes and breaks off that principality and power and sets him free. Now, you may never know those stories until you get to heaven. But that isn't the reason that you worship anyways. You worship because he's worthy of it. But the beautiful thing is we get to see the most incredible testimonies while we're doing it. I mean, to me, it's like the greatest win-win in life. Like, first of all, who doesn't want to hang out in the presence of God on a Saturday night? That's why I'm here. I'm so geeked out. I mean, I do this like 300 nights a year, and I've never gotten tired of it yet. Not only do we get to hang out with God, not only do we get to partner with our eternal destiny as worshipers before the throne, but when we enter into that intimate act, cool stuff happens. And sometimes I feel like, you know, the, like the Lord is establishing and raising up these cultures and these communities like you guys on this campus because there's all of these people all around you. I mean, just imagine, just dream with me, right? Let's just talk crazy. Can we just talk crazy for a minute? And then I'll stop and we'll take a sweet tea break. Like sometimes we just need to talk crazy. Like people don't talk crazy enough in church. They don't want to get their expectations up. They don't want to whatever. Well, I'm just going to talk crazy. What if the Saudi prince sent his family here? And what if the Saudi prince's family got saved because they were walking down the sidewalk while you guys were roaring out your worship to God, the presence of God came on them, they got radically saved, and the Saudi prince's kids became revivalists that went back, set revival in their whole family of Saudi princes, and the whole landscape of the Middle East changed because... 
One group of people was worshiping in one room in little old Richmond, Virginia. I mean, what if, and sometimes I feel like we're just, we're like, and, and this is what I want to give you guys permission for. Like, this is not a, woe is me, you know, me and my grandma's gathering together because they're the only intercessors in the back corner of the room. No, intercession and worship is the most exciting, thrilling movement on the face of planet Earth. And my dream is that God would raise people up with crazy ideas. I mean, we have them all over our communities. I feel like it's a grace that we carry is to call people into dreaming. I mean, who would have ever thought we could gather a million people in Brazil? And then a million, the million person outreach, which is happening today and tomorrow, that'll be the greatest global outreach day in the history of the world. An army of missionaries of one million people in a nation, in one nation. I mean... And I just believe, and this is part of this atmosphere, guys, of worship and prayer, is it removes our limitations and it gives us a peek into the divine capability of our God. All of a sudden, everything that's impossible becomes possible. The Saudi Arabian princes, kids, getting blasted by the presence of God. Oh, it's crazy to think that one small prayer meeting could shift the scope of the Middle East. I'll share, end with this story, and then I'm going to pray over you. You guys ever heard of the Welsh Revival? One of the greatest revivals in modern history. I say modern. It was in the last, you know, 100, 120 years. And um, what we know about the Welsh Revival is, is that within about... 12 to 18 months of it starting in this little dinky town in Wales, over 350,000 people were saved. And a couple years ago, I got the privilege and opportunity to go visit this little tiny, dinky, dorky little chapel in the countryside of Wales with a town name I can't even pronounce. It's like this long. It's in Welsh. And the the chapel, it's called Moriah Chapel. And... um, so the story goes is that this guy grew up in, in, in the church there. His dad was a, the pastor. It's your typical pastor's case scenario where the sons burn out on church and he's kind of thinking about being rebellious. And he comes to his dad and he says, you know, dad, I'm so tired of church. Nothing, you know, it's always boring. Nothing happens. It's exciting. We pray and we never see the fulfillment of our prayers. Like, I'm just done with it. I'm done with church. And his dad grabs his son by the arms. And his name was Evan Roberts. He grabbed his son and he goes, Evan, we're only one meeting away from revival. We just don't know which one it is. Don't give up, you know. So this is the changing, you know, this, the, the moment that changed in Evan's heart. And he started, from that time he decided, okay, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to try it one more time. He went to every single service they had. Choir rehearsal services. Early morning prayer meetings. He went to all of them. Till one day, he was gathered together in the back of Moriah Chapel. Not even in the, in the main sanctuary, which seats like 60 people. But in the back corner youth section 
which seats way less in the back of the church. And he was back there with a handful of teenagers. Probably half of them are bored. And they're in a prayer meeting. And this girl stands up in the middle of the prayer meeting. Twelve to sixteen people there. And she stands up and she prays this prayer out. And prophesies this declaration over Wales. She says, I love the Lord my God with all my heart. And I give my life to him. And Wales will see revival in my life. Twelve-year-old girl prays this prayer. That night, everything breaks open. That night, in a little dinky youth group, a 12-year-old girl prayed a prayer and prophesied. 16 months later, or 12 to 18 months later, 350,000 people were saved. And that revival launched the Korean revival. Pyongyang, North, you know, Pyongyang, North Korea, that was the epicenter of the Korean revival. A million Koreans came to Jesus. A million Asians. You know, all from all over Asia. It started Azusa Street in the West Coast. I mean, these all sprung out of one declaration of one little 12-year-old during a prayer meeting. I mean, I just want to provoke you, you know. And I just feel like it's important for us guys... We have to be the perpetual optimists all the time. And that's a grace and a gift I feel like that the Lord's called us to. Of course, we try to walk in that as much as I can. And trust me, I was about to lose my perpetual optimism when it took me three and a half hours to get here today instead of an hour and a half. And so I know the normal issues of life. But I just feel like that today the Lord is activating something in our hearts. And if anything, I just want to spur you guys on. To believe with me for this thing. You know, if three people in this room get this, it is worth the three and a half hours in traffic. You know, it's worth the trip. And so, I want to pray over you. And then, yes, we are going to get some sweet tea. We're going to have a great time tonight. Call your friends, your neighbors, your aunts, your dogs, your cousins. Tell them to come out. I do want to mention, too, um, I just released a project two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, called Messengers. I, probably one of my favorite albums I've ever done. I did it with a bunch of my friends from Bethel and Jesus Culture. and There's some guys from the, from the International House of Prayer. It's a real collaborative effort. Um, but um, this project was released, and it's, it's been amazing, the testimonies we've heard back. Uh, I just encourage you to pick that stuff up. As I mentioned before, $12. As I mentioned before... Um, uh, we, you know, my family, a big, a big part of what we do is we guard our atmosphere, you know, and we fill it nonstop with worship, you know, our, our home, our car, you know, I, this morning I, I was jogging, every morning I jog and I just blast worship music and I just fill my spirit, you know, with the sound of worship. And this is a great book that um, I kind of help spearhead. I brought this because... It's like really good for worship leaders and for people that are engaged in the prayer and worship movement. Um, Rick Pino did a chapter in here. I did a couple chapters. Jake Hamilton did a few chapters in here. And this is just a great book on, it's called The Culture of Revival, on, on what the culture of revival looks like in a young generation. You know, there's a lot of revival culture jargon, but what does that, what does the manifestation of that look like in our homes, in our lives, in our marriages, you know, in our families? And, 
And um, so anyway, that's back there. But let me pray over you. Jesus, I thank you, God, for Richmond, Virginia. God, I thank you for the unique calling, God, and the mandate on this house. I thank you, Lord, for this strategic placement and positioning, God, on this incredible campus, God. And I thank you for the voices of worship and prayer that you're raising up in this community, God. I just pray today, Lord, that, that there would be a Holy Spirit activation in every heart here, God. Lord, I break off limitations. I break off spirits of fear and intimidation, Lord. I break off even those in the room that just feel overwhelmed sometimes, God. I just pray, Lord, that you would begin to position us in the greater reality, the greater authority of what you've called us to. Lord, I pray, God, that you would begin to cultivate and create, God, your ecclesia in this community. Lord, your ruling body government, Lord, people that know when they worship and pray, things happen. And I pray, Lord, that you begin to open their eyes, God, to be able to see and witness the testimonies of the breakthrough that's happening all around them. Lord, that they would begin to see, Lord, even as they go throughout their normal day, God, cultivating this lifestyle and this this awareness of worship. God, give them a peek into the heavenlies so they can see what's happening, God. Give them the, 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 the privilege, God, of hearing the testimonies. Lord, I pray, God, for a great grace, Lord, to increase their hours of worship and prayer. Lord, not not out of a religious obligation, but, God, out of a holy fascination that they just cannot spend enough time with you, Lord. I just pray for the, for the level of hunger to rise, God, in the heart of every person in this room. And I just speak that word in Song of Song 2. The winter is past. The spring has come. The season of singing is is here. The season of singing over the city of Richmond. The season of singing, God, over VCU, the campus. Lord, I pray, God, let the collateral damage happen, God, in this campus, in this university, in this city, God. Bless these guys, Lord. I bless their hearts, and I just pray, pray and speak increase and favor in Jesus' name. Amen. That's awesome. Thank you, John.